Welcome to the What Next podcast, brought to you by me, Carl Considine. What Next exists to share sober stories with the intention of inspiring change for the better. Whether you're sober, sober curious, or just looking for general life inspiration, we're the podcast for you. Our stories are full of heart and always without judgment. So on today's episode, we are chatting with a really good friend of mine, Chris. And Chris has been a huge part of my sobriety journey, even though he only came into my life about a year ago. And um, Chris is sober himself and wants to talk to the fact that, actually, do you know what? Sober life, the grass is greener on the other side. What you let go of, you gain so much more in return. Um, Chris, welcome to the show. Hiya, love. Hiya, love. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. I'm so excited to talk to you about your experience, your sobriety journey. And I just think you've got some really good insight and you've got lots of good stuff to share. Um, So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) So should we start with how we know each other? Shall we start there? Yeah, that's a nice place to start. Okie doke. So, well, we met at the end of 2021. Yeah. Um, I'm a PT, fitness coach, online coach. I teach classes in town as well. And at the time I was doing a lot of PT, you approached me on Instagram and we started training together. Mm. We were doing two sessions a week and... Yeah, and I loved our sessions, as mm. I mentioned the other day on a recent Instagram post. I loved our sessions. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, because you were always very focused and driven and you were progressing really quickly and that got us both very excited. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, the friendship developed from there. Yeah. And it's been amazing. In my sobriety, I've definitely had to just kind of figure out what I'm into and what I like. And um, that's taken a bit of time, right? And I'm two years sober. And it's fair to say in that first year, it was a little bit up and down. Um, But towards the end of that first year, when we met and I reached out to you because I wanted to not only just have something to do in, you know, weight training and exercise and all of that, but I'd also got to the point of just really giving a shit about my body and about my health. Mm. And it became more about um, investing in myself and working with you was, there were two lenses to it. So one lens was getting your support and, coaching and you know technical expertise to be able to work out and to be able to grow as a result of that but the second element and if not more so was me kind of just reframing my mind around looking after myself and um being a better person and you know I've learned a lot from you and that's why I say without any, you know, I'm not being dramatic here, but it has been 
life-changing for me and <laughs> it's been a really important part of my journey so good I'm yeah really pleased thank you for thank you for bringing that into my life oh you're so welcome yeah it's interesting isn't it because i think that for the longest time when we were in the thick of you know alcohol abuse and addiction and and just doing so much to to damage our body it's i'm so grateful that now it couldn't be more the opposite and actually mm. my training and i'm so glad for you too your training is now a means to honor your body to mm. nourish your body to um uh, it's an act of self-love isn't it and i think that when we feel good and we feel strong and we feel well taken care of we we hold ourselves with our shoulders back and mm. our chest up um a little higher and um it affects everything in 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 our lives and and what we do and um and the confidence that we have in all facets of our lives so um it's yeah it listening to you just just mention that it's uh, it's interesting the polarity between yeah how we how we would treat our body and yeah. and how we do now yeah totally and not to put you on the spot but to pick up on something that you said there um the words that you re- used around alcohol misuse and or addiction um do you place yourself anywhere within that kind of spectrum how would you describe yourself in your relationship with booze it's interesting i think i think i would have um i would have uh, i wouldn't for, for the longest time even you know since choosing sobriety i wouldn't have said that i was addicted i would have i would i would have not chosen that language but the reality is that it took a long time for me to cut the cord mm. and i would argue now that that is in itself a form of addiction an addiction to um perhaps not a a, a ph- physiological dependency on mm. it but mm. certainly there was a dependency on having it in my life as a i don't know as a security mm. as a security blanket that's so it. interesting yeah so it's not black and white is it no it's not black and white and i think for a lot of people that terminology or that language is quite black and white and dependent on which side of the fence that you're on if you're on the addiction side there's um the perceptions of that right but uh-huh. um the fact of the matter is alcohol is an addictive substance uh-huh. and if you're drinking it enough then it's going to have some of those effects, right? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I've never heard you say that. That's interesting. Yeah. So how would you describe your relationship with drinking then? Now? Back then. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm sober. How would I describe my relationship with alcohol back then? Um, well, towards the back end of my drinking years... I'd before choosing sobriety I'd already begun to I'd already I'd started drinking less and less and you know I I'd, I'd hit I'd hit a an an all-time low my my lowest low and that really set me on the 
path to ultimately choosing sobriety and I was drinking less and less and prioritizing my training more and more. But my, I, I don't know, it, it alcohol was just something that had been in my life for as long as I could remember. It had started, I'd started drinking when I was sort of 15, 16. I'd come out as gay. Um, I'd come out as bi, then gay. Oh my God. I had no <laughs> idea. Uh, it was a journey. It was a journey. I took him on a journey. I was bi for a bit, <laughs> then I was gay. <laughs> and for me, that bred a lot of insecurity. And I started, I started drinking. I started drinking to compensate for that insecurity. And, you know, I viewed, and I was celebrated for drinking actually at that age in mm. school you know, I was, I was cool and I was rebellious and that was interesting. And it made the inverted commas weird, weirdness of my queerness. Um, it, it wasn't, it, it, it masked that it was, it was, it was cool that I was drinking. And so, mm. so I lent into that. It was a lot, it felt a lot more comfortable than um than the weirdness of my queerness Mm, mm. and is there something in there just around the acceptance and you know if you've got an insecurity around your queerness as you describe it um and you feel you know vulnerable or insecure as a result of that but then externally you're able to almost gain some validation through drinking a lot, through um, drinking in a certain way. Um, There's like an acceptance there, isn't there? It's like you're part of something and you're Uh being accepted for who you are, even though there's still those internal conflicts and dialogues. Yeah, completely. But all of those internal conflicts and dialogues don't go away. They still, Mm. they stay there and they stayed there for years. Mm. And the drinking increased and, but the insecurity stayed and, um, but you're right. Yeah. It was, it, it created, um, uh, there was a sense, I guess a sense of belonging in drinking that I was perhaps absent. Mm. And it's funny. I think he used the word glamorized and, that really, I really identify with that. That really resonated. I think for a long time, I saw my way of drinking as, I wore it as a badge of honor. Yeah. You know, it was applauded to yeah. go out with, particularly, you know, with a group of, of gay guys. Um, Perhaps older as well. Yeah, who could be like the most wild and who could be the most ridiculous yeah. and drink, 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 drink. And, you know, that was encouraged and supported. And glamorized feels like a really good word because that's kind of what happens, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I really identify with that. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was celebrated. It was cool. And, um, I, 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 yeah, I was definitely, I definitely felt celebrated for it. I felt cool. Yeah. I felt very cool. Yeah. You are cool. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us then about, it, it sounds like 
in your younger years, you, you came out as gay, you I came drinking, out as bi. Came okay. out as bi, sorry, then gay. <laughs> um, your drinking was there <laughs> from your kind of mid to late teens. What did that what did that progression look like for you in terms of your relationship with booze? So so came out as so came out at fifteen, started drinking quite a lot and stopped really I I knew I knew better. I always knew I knew better, but I stopped taking things as seriously as I knew that I should have or that I should be at school and I wasn't as invested. I wasn't as engaged. I wasn't taking my studies as seriously as I, as I was. And I eventually then went to university at 18 and I'd actually applied to go to Manchester university, but I, I didn't get in because I wasn't taking my studies seriously. I didn't get the grades to actually get into Manchester University. So I ended up going to Swansea University, which was about 40 minutes in the car from where I was from. Mm. And a lot of my friends from, from school actually went there too. So it didn't feel, I don't know, it didn't really feel like I hadn't gotten into the university that I wanted to go. So I therefore wasn't as engaged you know, as, 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 as I, as I would have been, had I gone to where I actually wanted to go, oh, I'm at my, I'm at my backup option. Great. So I wasn't quite as invested. Um, everything was very familiar as well. It was Swansea. It was down the road. You know, I knew Swansea very well. It wasn't particularly new or exciting. Mm. And, you know, my environment felt, felt the same as it, as it has all, as it had been, on the, you know, in the years leading up to that, I just happened to be in a seaside town doing it now. Mm. And so I just kept drinking and I've always said that I, I think that I was too young to go to university despite living this life of, you know, drinking and trying to assert my maturity through drinking and Mm. these parties and this lifestyle that I was living. Um, I was actually really immature. I was way too young to go to university. And so by the time I got there, uh, you know, I, it was first year was we had freshers for a couple of weeks. I had, I had freshers for the whole year. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was just drinking nonstop and, you know, I could count on one hand the number of times that I actually went to mm-hmm. a lecture or a seminar. I don't think I knew the difference between a lecture and a seminar. Really? I don't. <laughs> I, I don't think I do either now. But, um, so, you know, I didn't go. I really just, the, the, the bottom line is I just wasn't going to university. I was drinking all of the time. And I was actually, I, I was working as well. And I, I've always, I've always worked. I've always, that's always been, you know, a part of my spirit to, to work hard. Um, and so I, I got a job and I was working, but yeah, I was just drinking a lot. And, um, and then I got to second year. I don't, don't know how, I don't know what kind of the, the process is for, for leaving or being kicked out of university, but I got to second year and in second year we'd moved from student halls to the, um, into like a house. So in a residential area, as opposed to student accommodation and 
you know, we would have holidays, Easter holidays, summer holidays, Christmas holidays, where all of my housemates would go home. I would always stay. That was, mm. that was where I lived. And I just, just drank, just drank absolutely shitloads. <laughs> and, um, and it, it, it eventually, it had gotten to, it gotten to a point with, um, at, at Swansea where, as I said, everybody would go home over Christmas and over the holidays. I'd stay there. I was so reckless. You know, I would smash through the windows to get in if I'd lost the keys, which would happen all of the time. You know, I'd lose my keys on a night out. I'd, I'd smash through the kitchen window, crawled through the kitchen window, or I'd, you know, climbed onto the roof and smashed through the bathroom window and then crawled through the bathroom window, cutting myself and scratching myself in the process. And, um, you know, there was, there was a, a, a period where I had the front room on the middle floor and we had these big, big bay windows and, uh, I'd smashed one of the windows, but I'd been such a nuisance to my landlord. I'd been so, such a problematic tenant that I knew that if I were, I, I certainly didn't, I didn't have the money to, to replace it myself. And it certainly wasn't a priority mm. for me to replace it. Um, where you could spend that money on booze. Right? I could spend that money on booze and, and so yeah, the, the window was smashed and the window remained smashed for, weeks, months in, in my bedroom. So it was just, it was just a really grubby and mm. uncomfortable way of living. There was a smashed window. There were, you know, there were food boxes and, you know, I didn't have bed sheets on my bed and I wasn't doing the washing. So, you know, my clothes were piling up. I just wasn't taking any pride in where I was living. I wasn't, I didn't have enough, I hadn't, nowhere near enough respect for myself to want to create a comfortable mm. home environment for myself. It just, it was, I don't know. There was almost, I was just, I, I was just very felt removed from reality. You know, mm. I guess is, mm. is how I would describe it. And it was, uh, yeah, it was just really grubby. And, you know, as I said, we were living in a residential area at the time. It was this big Victorian, um, house that we were living in and it was it was four students but it was in a residential area so there were there were, there were six of us living in this in this house and you know I was such a nuisance neighbor I'd remember looking out onto the street and you'd see all of the neighbors just stood in the street just with their arms folded looking up at the at the bedroom the smashed bedroom window and I'm thinking Gosh. oh shit yeah um, you know, I can't, I can't leave my house because these, they're all really pissed off with me and probably rightly so. Rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. So what was going on in terms of, you mentioned that you didn't have respect for yourself and you didn't have the capacity to care for yourself. I mean, can you even answer that question? Do you know, did you know at the time what was going on for you and why you were feeling like that? I don't know. No, I think there's something about perhaps, you know, the, the disappointment in not actually going to, to live in the city that I'd wanted to live in to, I don't know, maybe create the life that 
I felt I was being cheated of as a gay in a small village. I don't know. I don't know if it was just feeling like I was, I wasn't where I should, I wasn't where I was, mm. where I should have been. Mm. And I longed for more. I longed for an acceptance that I just perhaps wasn't getting from being in a small town. And I'd missed out on the opportunity to get that by not going to Manchester. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I was suddenly on a path that just maybe just didn't feel in alignment with what I wanted, what I felt I needed. And I just stopped caring and I didn't maybe have the direction. I didn't have the direction. So it was, I, mean, I don't really want to be doing this course. I don't really want to be here. I don't have anything that I really care about. Mm. And I'm just going to, like who gives a shit? Yeah. You know? And I think, I don't know. I feel like people will really connect with that because when you're not, if you're in a place in life when you're just not satisfied with how things are working out and to use your words, you know, it's not, it's not aligned to my expectations of what I want and you become miserable, right? And you become depressed. So yeah. you were using that as a, a mechanism or a tool or a device to get out of that reality. But it's, it's a dangerous game, isn't it? Because unfortunately, the substance, you know, scientifically speaking, I'm not a scientist or an expert, but it makes you depressed. And I think yeah. we can all agree that alcohol um, and overconsumption of alcohol equals um, a depressive mood. Yeah. So it's it's that like self-perpetuating thing where things aren't working out and then the thing that you turn to to get some relief from worsens the situation yeah yeah that's it and you know actually in feeling like i was missing out on x y and z alcohol certainly wasn't going to help me put those plans into place to make no. a change you know no. it was <laughs> quite the opposite yeah. and um I, yeah i eventually ended up getting evicted from that house god um just because I was a nightmare. And I just remember the girls that I lived with who had been, and still are very, very, very good friends, but had been very good friends for many years. We'd gone to school together and then we'd gone to university together. And just one, one afternoon and I was there with a friend. Um, and we, she and I would always just get very, we'll get, we'll call it, get, would call it getting mortal, which I find to be such a... Oh, yeah. Do you remember that word? Yeah. <laughs> Let's well, get mortal. Didn't they used to say it on Geordie Shaw? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's where it came from. Yeah. So we would, yeah, we would get, she and I were, would get mortal together. <laughs> 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 and, um, you know, I think we'd gotten mortal one evening and it was the next day we'd kind of woken from a, a haze and... Hmm. Uh, I'd seen that uh, someone in the, in the house had slipped a letter underneath the door. Um, and it was an eviction notice from my, from my landlord. And, oh gosh, just now I look back and I just think, gosh, the, how uncomfortable my, my friends of 
years must have felt mm. having to having to do that and the conversations that they must have had amongst themselves as to how they were going to do that who was going to do it what would be the best way to, to do it to let me to let me know because mm. they knew before I did they knew before I did that I was getting evicted and that was yeah that's something that is it just is very icky. He's stuck with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got the eviction notice and, and then, and it was only on, you know, in reflecting over these last few weeks, kind of preparing for, for this session today, this conversation that we're having, that mm. it really kind of dawned on me that oh, sh- sh- I was homeless for a little while. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a home, you know, I, mm had been evicted from that home and I, you know, I had family back home in Wales and I'm sure there could have been, there would have been somewhere that I could have gone, but, um, but I didn't have a home and I stopped with, um, with friends for a little while. Mm. Um, and then by this point, you know, it was, oh, you know, university was over. Like I'm not, I'm not going back to university last done. Yeah. And I guess there's like something around, you know, you don't want to go home and tell your family that you need somewhere to live, right? Because yeah. then that opens up a kind of worms. As we're having this conversation, I'm not sure if they even know. Oh, really? I'm not sure if they even know the extent of it. Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> I've got some phone calls to make. Um, so tell me a bit more about, you've mentioned this, it sounds like you had a goal of getting to Manchester and, you know, you've mentioned this, not being happy with kind of living in a town close to where you were from. And so I guess, like, what was that about? What was the pull of Manchester and kind of why did you want to get here? It's a good question. I think, you know, there had been drama dramatizations of queer life in manchester that felt very far removed from queer life in abdair by life by life in abdair (laughs) (laughs) the you know just felt very very accepting very loving very i don't know just it just felt like like more like 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 home it felt yeah. like there was home there for me yeah um so i was definitely on a mission to get to, to manchester spoiler i made it <laughs> hello hello <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i was on a mission to get to manchester for, for sure or to some sort of city where there was you know culture that um that, that, that resonated with me and um so yeah, after after Swansea, I I went to Cardiff. I lived in Cardiff for a little bit, and I was working mainly in bars in in Cardiff. Which for someone that was drinking a lot, and, yeah. and for someone you know for whom alcohol was really not serving them, yeah, bar work was. You wouldn't have admitted at the time though, that it wasn't serving you. It was no. exactly where you I was perfect. To be. Yeah. It was yeah. It was absolutely perfect. That was an intentional yeah. move. Yeah, not me handing out CVs to all the bars in Cardiff. <laughs> <laughs> but um 
Yeah, so I worked in uh, I worked in a couple. I worked at a bar in Cardiff, and that was and and you know, and she's a very she is a very a good friend, but we were not good. We were not good together. Mm. You know, she liked to drink, and I liked to drink. We both liked to drink a lot. We both liked to outdrink each other. We both we both glamorized the stories, the banter, mm. the ridiculousness of a really messy night out and mm. what we would have to share with each other. It was not a, it was not a good combination. So we moved, but we moved to Cardiff together and mm. we lived together and we both worked in bars and we both lived a very messy life in Cardiff together. And, you know, we weren't, uh, it was a continuation of life in Swansea. You know, I wasn't, didn't, I lacked, I lacked personal responsibility. I didn't, I didn't consider it important to prioritize my rent payments. And, you know, I remember I would have, a we had a landlord that we just, it was a direct landlord and we just didn't, we just took the mick and we would rarely pay on time, often just completely skip rent altogether and, you know, she was, she was quite, she was quite scary and she would come round and she had this huge Range Rover, huge. <laughs> and she would drive round and she'd pull up outside this because it was like a little, um, I don't know, like a little granny flat on the back of, of a terraced house. So you could drive in in like a tiny little car park and she would drive in and she was this glamorous Cardiff lady and she had this huge Range Rover but she was very scary and we would we wouldn't pay our rent and we'd see her pull up in the driveway and we'd think oh my god she's here and she'd be knocking on the doors knocking on the windows and we'd be hiding underneath the windows from her and she's banging on the windows trying to if at one time she actually she saw me and she put me in the car and she drove me to Sainsbury's to get money out and oh my god yeah it was just oh it was silly it was very silly so that was how Cardiff went and then eventually then I was I was slowly making my way and I eventually then I got to to Bristol and Bristol was more bar work I'd worked in a bar in Cardiff that had a good reputation and um, you know in that sort of scene and it got me working in Bristol and I'd worked in some really good bars in Bristol and I, 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 don't, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, I actually had a really good time in Bristol, hmm. um, but I was, I was doing work. I was working in bars and I, the bars I was working at there were with these, were, were really competitive and it was, it was a profession that was taken really seriously. And there were bartenders who were incredible, incredibly talented bartenders, mixologists, world, world-class, hmm. um, industry leading mixologists and you know a lot of them were able to find a balance between this is what I do for work and this is you know and I can I can drink and enjoy a drink and not get messed up but that just didn't that just didn't work for me you know I it was part of my JD to to drink it was part of my JD to to create new drinks and mm. I didn't have the boundaries in place to to separate that as my job and and then to leave it at that. Yeah. 
What do you mean when you say JD? Job description. Job, distri- job, yeah. job description, yeah. yeah. I guess that's a massive thing in hospitality as well, right? If you, I never worked in hospitality, luckily, um, but you're surrounded by it constantly. It must be really difficult if you're inclined to enjoy having a drink. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I actually, I worked for a little bit in, um, I did a little bit in Revolution uh, in Bristol for a little while, <laughs> um, which, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a <laughs> lot of fun. Um, but it just was not a sustainable. That isn't how I, that isn't yeah. how I could live. You know, yeah. I would, we'd do these, we would do these cocktail parties and, you know, it was, I don't want to say, well, do you know what? It probably was encouraged that I got a little bit drunk for those parties because, mm. you know, the girls would come in, the woo-woo girls would come in for their Hindu parties and we'd have cocktail masterclasses and mm. I'd get a little bit drunk with them. And then, mm. God, there were some shifts I was absolutely hammered. Some shifts I was on the bar, topless, they were doing body shots off me. Of course you were. Of course you were. <laughs> Actually, it's reminded me, I've told a white lie. I did spend a little bit of time in hospitality. Yeah. Um, when I lived in Leeds and I worked in recruitment, so I had a job Monday to Friday. And I think it was through the bar scene and through going out. There was a gay bar that I used to go to pretty much every night. No, in Leeds. Oh, in Leeds. Yeah. And um, recruitment was quite like work hard, play hard and yeah. be over every day and then go out for drinks. And um, yeah, there was this bar that we used to like going to. And I got Sorry quite... to interrupt you. I was just going to say, just before, I, I think there's something in that about recruitment though. Yeah. In that I know that certainly friends that I, I've had that work in recruitment, it was almost encouraged by the bosses that they would go out, spend a ton on a night out to motivate them to go into work on Monday. And oh, it was more. crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. And it was just, I think the type of people that worked in that environment, you know, it's a heavily sales driven environment. Yeah. It's commission based. So yeah. you're earning decent commissions and I was living in the city centre of Leeds, so of course we'd go out every day after work and then be hanging the next day in work. So the only option was to drink when it got to the end of the day because you just felt so horrendous. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was really, and it probably was encouraged. Yeah. Um, Don't get me wrong, like you said about Bristol, like I had a lovely time, but looking back with what I know now is that in my broader journey, that just didn't serve me. That just allowed me to continue with um, drinking behaviours that weren't helpful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I met, I, I must have got introduced to the owner of this bar and he had like a warehouse in Leeds where they'd have massive raves every weekend. And I ended up working there on Friday and Saturday nights. So I'd work a full week. I'd drink after work every night. And then you could do a shift there. And then Friday, Saturday night, I'd work in his <laughs> warehouse it was all cash. It was cash only at the time. Yeah. So the money was never counted in the tills. Everyone was just, all the bar staff drank for free, basically. And it was just a party. It was just well, a party. Just yeah. drink all night, dance on the bar, live your best life. Um, so yeah, I did have a bit of that. Um, luckily, not long term, though. Yeah. So that was Bristol. That was Bristol, yeah. So I was doing a lot of bar work at Bristol. And then 
I was introduced to, I, I met somebody and he then got me into doing contract work. Um, so as a, as a self-employed contractor for, um, for a bank, for a, for a, for a, for a big bank, a, a banking group firm. And it was as a contract, a self-employed contractor being paid a day rate as a, as a complaints handler. And so I did that. And it, to be honest, actually, when that started, I was to get my foot into the door. I was um, actually living in Bristol, but I ended up actually work, having to work in Halifax through the week. And then I'd come back to Bristol on the weekend. So it was a lot of traveling. Then I'd come back on the weekend and then my partner and I, we would, you know, smash, smash the wine. But, um, but eventually that led to, you know, we was, he was doing that sort of work as well. And that we, um, it became, uh, became known that there was a, there was a project coming up in Reading. This big project was coming up in Reading and there was going to be a lot of opportunity there. And so we, kept our ears to the ground. And when the project was announced, we were both recruited and onboarded to that project. And I moved to Reading. We moved to Reading together. This was a project of, you know, a couple of hundred people and a couple of hundred people, mostly under 30. Um, lots of, lots of young people and everybody earning a day rate, a very healthy day rate. I'd taken a pay rise to go to Reading and a surprise, surprise, there was a big drinking culture mm. there in this, in this kind of work too. Um, but obviously in a different capacity to what I was used to in the bar, in the bar jobs. Yeah. Um, suddenly, you know, there's 200 or so people all under one roof. There's a bar across the road. Everybody's earning lots of money somebody's going to be up for a drink. Somebody was always up for a drink mm. every single night of the week. Somebody was up for a drink. So, um, so that, yeah, perpetuated, a, a, you know, a lot of, a lot of drinking. And my partner at the time was, was really, was really affected by the accessibility of drinking and social situations that involve drinking, you know, he was, he was really, he really struggled with addiction and, you know, he had to go to rehab and it was gambling, it was alcohol, it was, it was, it was drugs. And, and so, yeah, there was just a lot, there was just a lot of drinking and dreading as well. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because whilst like my, my drinking, I think actually definitely took, it started, like, it started to, it really, um, in, it, I was drinking a lot more in Reading. Um, I was drinking a lot more beer in Reading actually, but there was a lot more drinking in Reading and it became more of a problem for sure. And I managed to seek out those people who, you know, were, who, who liked to get debaucherous and silly and yeah. 
it, you know, big lot. What a lol. What a lol getting messed up like this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I sort those people out and who can take it one step further. Yeah. And all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I would move in with them and I thought that was, <laughs> Hey, should we get a house together? Um, um, but yeah, you know, whilst that, I, I look back now and I would, it was, it was, it was definitely a problem. My, my partner at the time, for whom it was a bigger problem, it made my problem feel insignificant, as mm. if it wasn't a problem. Mm. His problem's worse than mine. So it almost, it almost, um, justified mm. my behavior mm. or it minimized my behavior. It minimized my problem. Yeah. Yeah. So I just couldn't, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't see it for what it really was. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good word as well, minimised. It's like, okay, I'm just going to raise the bar a little bit on what I think is acceptable. Yeah. Um, And I'm not doing that. So actually what I'm doing is fine. Yeah. It's like, hey, here's a little get out of jail free card. Yeah. Um, Continue doing what you're doing. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. You okay? Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Collect 200 pounds. Yeah. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so it, it was, it was, it was, it was definitely a problem for me, but it wasn't a problem for me because, well, I'm not getting hospitalized. Yeah. I'm not, you know, this is, and I don't know. He, it was just, it was, it was really bad for him. So my problem wasn't a problem. Um, however, you know, I got, I got, I, I got a drink driving ban in the time that we were together. Mm. You know, we, we'd gone to visit his mum and we'd gone out for a night out and we'd, all gone out we'd all gotten really drunk and you know and as as i'm sure that it would for me you know as as i know that it did for me occasionally if not very often you know he he'd he drunk so much and then something had clicked something had switched his personality had completely changed who he was was completely different he'd become a different person mm. very jekyll and hyde mm. um and on this night out, he decided that, you know, we, 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 we'd, we'd fallen out. He was going, he was leaving, he was storming off. He was, you know, he left basically. So suddenly it was just me and his mum, and we called it a night and we went, we went back home and, oh, we just thought he, he's, he's being stupid. We'll just wait for him to come back. Um, I'm hammered. I'm absolutely hammered. Um, but we're like, we'll leave him. We'll, he's, you know. He'll come back when he's ready. And we start getting phone calls then from him to let us know that he's injured himself. He's hurt himself or he's on the beach and he's knocked himself and he's grazed his knee or whatever. And we're like, okay, well, you know, get in a taxi now. Come on. It's, it's getting, it's late. And the phone calls keep coming. The injuries keep getting worse. It becomes more critical. I'm getting phone calls from my mum. She's had phone calls from him to say, I'm here. And it becomes, oh, you know, I'm, I'm on the beach. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill myself. And 
we were doing we were doing self-employed work as i said we were we were both contracting at the time and we couldn't afford to have criminal records you know when it came when it would come to finding another job our employability would just go right down Mm. and so it the the perceived risk to me of the police going out to find him or an ambulance or the emergency services going out to find him as they should have done Mm. after being told he's there and he's hurt himself and whatever. It just felt like it couldn't comprehend that being an option because that would mean a criminal record potentially. And that would mean unemployability. And so I'd justified, I'd rationalized to myself that, well, I'll get in the car and I'll go and find him. Mm. I was hammered, mm. you know. I'd been, I'd, 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 my, I'd, I'd been face painted, you know. I'd, I'd, I'd a butterfly <laughs> on my face. <laughs> I was not, I was not sober. No. But I got in the car and I drove and I'd actually, I didn't know where I was going. We were, we were in Bournemouth. I had no idea. I'd never been to Bournemouth before. So I got in the car and it was a really powerful car as well. And, but I pulled over at one point because I didn't know where we were going to. And then the police drove past and knocked on the window and they said, we'd seen you on CCTV in the way that you were driving. And and that, that was it. You know, I was hmm. put in a cell. I was charged. I got 18 months uh, banned from driving. I got mm. a, a fine and, um, but it's interesting. I still, I blamed him. That was his fault. And yeah. I lacked the personal responsibility to say, oh, right. Okay. Well, that was my, that was my problem. I've got to change something here. Yeah. I just couldn't, I could not see that. Which is so interesting, right? Like you've got a legal proceeding, a conviction for something that is related to at the time is related to drinking like you can't be any more explicit than that can you this has happened because you were drinking yeah and still it sounds like what you're saying is you'd not acknowledge that that was a problem yeah exactly yeah so what did it take at what point in life did you start to consider that alcohol was a problem it wasn't serving you what how did that come about so after reading i i ended up leaving that job or that work that project by the time i'd left i'd gotten i'd gotten a few promotions i'd been there for a couple of years and I got another job somewhere else that was mainly working from home. And some things happened in my person. Like some things, some things had happened. And it just made me, I just thought, you know, fuck it. I'm, I'm just, I've got nothing keeping me in Redden anymore. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to go to Manchester. And by this point, you know, I was in it. I was earning four, five hundred pounds a day. I was earning a lot of money. And um and I moved to Manchester. Finally I was going to Manchester <laughs> 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 to 
to live my queer as folk life and i was i was there and i was spending a lot of money i was drinking a lot mm. i was out all of the time and then i was using as well i was taking drugs and i'm really thankful that cuz i don't think that i I don't know. It's a tricky one because I'm about the words that were about to leave my lips then were, I don't think I've got an addictive personality necessarily. I do think that I, I always think, I always think I knew better. I always, I think I always knew mm. that I knew better. Mm. <coughs> and I think, I think addictive personality is a fallacy in this topic. Uh-huh. I think it's something that people throw around, but um, you know, I've said this before. We're talking about addictive substances. Yeah. Your personality isn't addictive. Yeah. That's the a thing good point. that you're putting in your body is addictive. And if you're doing that too much, then surprise, that's what happens, right? It's yeah. you struggle to reduce or you struggle to change because your body becomes, whether you're conscious of this or not, your body becomes addicted to it. It, you know, it's just a, a different way of cutting it up, so to speak. Yeah. And where did that come from then? How come there was such a, a, it sounds like there was a sudden spike in your behavior and in your using when you got to Manchester. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was like the, the gay scene inverted commas felt like the only scene where I would find fulfillment mm. where i'd feel fulfilled mm. where i would get the sense of feeling at home and so that's where that's where i went and i was at you know all the all the clubs till early morning you know seeing the the bin men yeah in the morning as you yeah. crawling out of the cellar oh god Rough. Feeling horrendous. Feeling absolutely horrendous. Still looking for somewhere else to go. Still looking for somewhere else to go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was where I went. That was, you know, that was where I thought that I, that is what I, that's what I thought that it was all about. I didn't know anything different. Mm-hmm. I was so uninformed um, as to what was perhaps available and on offer and the life I could have created for myself. I just had one version of what life could be yeah. in Manchester. And that's what I went for. And, um, very quickly. And I, I look back now and I can see and recognize very clearly the correlation between drinking, partying, going out and anxiety shame mm. the insecurity that was always there was manifesting mm. and and it was it just it 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 spiraled and ended up going away for a trip to berlin for a friend's birthday and it was it was that kind of trip i knew it was that kind of trip but we were all in it you know it was just what we did and so we'd gone to berlin for this for this trip that kind of trip and um, and I was just, I was, this was, this was, I was just about at the lowest, at my lowest point by this point. And 
I remember just feeling su such sounds ex sounds extreme to frame it like this, but such a a, a hatred for I had I had I had I had I had nothing to offer. I wasn't I had no worth, and I I felt pointless. I felt worthless and I didn't know I didn't know what my purpose was mm. and I hated myself I hated that I offered so little and we were sat in in the in the front room of the apartment that we'd rented and it bubbled up out of me amongst friends who had kind of massaged it out of me so to speak in a really kind of loving way mm. I was like guys I just absolutely hate myself you know I I don't know what else to say mm. I feel completely I feel completely lost and and it was out there then and you know it was that kind of trip as I said so you can imagine feeling that kind of way the fragility of my mental state as it as it was coupled with absolutely hammering the coke mm. and the way that the way that i felt after that mm. the next day Horrendous. oh my god agonizing yeah agonizing i don't know how to go on mm. and i remember pacing pacing the the corridor just panicked completely panicked shivering crying distraught begging anybody to hold me comfort me let me know it was going to be okay and it was just absolutely horrendous and uh, we came back and I think I was kind of in the after shock of that for a little while and that was my rock you know that was that was my rock bottom that mm. was that was it and I lived in an apartment block in town which was which was I was on the 25th floor and I had this huge balcony and my body was so tense and I felt so paralyzed and I was just processing the scenario. Okay, well, when I throw myself off the balcony, what is, what is the impact? What does the impact look like? Who am I going to, who am I going to leave behind? What kind of impact am I going to have on those people and their lives? And it was, yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't, mm. I couldn't leave behind my family. I couldn't leave that. I couldn't scar the rest of their lives by my, by, by that act. And I'm really glad that that, that stopped me from actually following through on mm. on those thoughts and um but i but i knew something needed to change as i said i knew something needed to change at that point that was i was i was ideating yeah my as my suicide something was something was not right yeah and so i'm on the i think it's the nacp website the uh, National Association of Counseling Practitioners, which is the 
directory of therapists and um uh, you know psychotherapist professionals and I'm, I'm calling frantically anybody everybody looking for anybody that could see me there and then i needed to speak to somebody right away mm. i need someone to get to work right away <laughs> post haste <laughs> um because i'd i'd been broken by that i was broken mm. i felt broken and i needed but i needed that to happen i needed i needed to be broken in that way because i that for me anyway that i needed to be broken in that way that's what truly put me on a path to 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 heal but that's where that's where my healing started yeah yeah it's tough chris that's really tough and yeah i identify with a lot of what you said there and um like what i hear like what i want to play back to you is that you did have something to offer back then as you do now and as you always have had but you just when you're in it you just don't see that do you and, yeah. and you don't feel that and you had this feeling of you know no purpose and what do i have to offer that language that you were using you did you were just clouded yeah. um with what was in your head and with what you were doing at the time um so what was the that was the wake up call right so that was the the gift of desperation that i've got to do something different where did it go from there how did you do something different where did you get inspiration what did that look like yeah so i started to i'm very fortunate in that i was able to start exercising s some more uh, self-restraint. I was able to start saying no more mm. to situations that I knew were going to rip apart my mental health. Mm. Nights out that I knew were going to have an, uh, have an effect on me for days to come afterwards. So I started saying no more and I also, that's, I trained for, for years, but it was kind of really around that time that I then started to take my training more seriously as well. So I found a, I found a gym and I got an annual membership and I started to take it really seriously. And I'd found a group of people who were all, ultimately and that's what you know is you know what i find so great about training is you know we're all ultimately there for the same reason we're all there to to get better to get stronger mm. we're all healing mm. and i was in this community of these people who were all healing and i was really motivated by progression and by strength and um and i got really into it and that that's when the the the, the scales started to tip more towards training than um towards drinking and mm. i found a lot of inspiration there i was i i i i i got a lot of my healing from my training and i then 
um, found inspiration to want to be able to offer that back to others. And mm. so I became more and more invested in my training. I you know, did my studies to, to become a PT myself. And I got that qualification and I said to, to, to the team at Block, I said, which is the gym that I work at. I said, oh, listen, you know, I, I really want to, I really want to teach you. Give me a, give me a chance. Give me a, give me a trial class. And, um, and so I did. And then I, uh, obviously I, got, I, I now teach there. I got a class there. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question. Sorry. I don't know where yeah. we started with that, but yeah, it was, well, the question was like, what next? Right. Yeah. So what did you do to, um, you talked, you've described it as your healing process. And, yeah. Um, I really love hearing about it actually, cause it's quite different to my experience. Right. I needed help, medical help to yeah. stop. And I think it's really important to call out that, you know, whatever your relationship with alcohol and or drugs, there's such a spectrum, right. Of where you might be um, placed in that journey. And, um, I think it's testament to you and I think it's really great that you were able to make better decisions for yourself and you were able to find something as an anchor that got you out of that place and got you out of that place enough for it to become um, habitual enough and motivating enough to a point where your life became different and you weren't in that cycle of because, yeah, there's the addictive element, right? But there's the habitual, this is just uh-huh. what I do. And if you can find something, a passion or something that um, can take you out of that, then that's a great option to have, right? Uh-huh. So where in that process did you make the decision to go sober? And at what point did that happen? So I was drinking less and less. And so t- middle of 2019 was, was breaking point. Got into training then for the rest of 2019. Obviously the lockdown happened, which was a curveball. Um, and then 2021. So I guess towards, towards the end of 2021. So in 2021, that's really when I, that's when I started teaching. That's when I started teaching. That's when I sort of, I was holding down my full-time job as a project manager and I was teaching a class once a week. Mm. I knew that that's, that work was lighting me up. I knew that's what I needed to do, but it's scary, right? Going from your well, a well-paying job to, to the, to the unknown. There was a lot of risk. Yeah. And, but I knew it's what I needed to do. So I I was supported by a very good friend who was my boss at the time. And he really helped to make that transition as smooth as it could be for me, which I'm so fortunate to have had. But ultimately, as I say, you know, I ended up quitting that job and moving into fitness full time. And suddenly I'm not earning as much money and I've got to make it work. You know, there's, I I can't afford for Mm. this not to be a success. Mm. I 
I've got a little girl to feed. <laughs> <laughs> Your dog. My dog, Lixie. Um, she, you know, she, I, 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 it has to work. And also, you know, it's never been, oh, I'm just cramping in my calf muscle. <laughs> Sorry. And also, I, it's never been lost on me. The, significance of my role in my clients' lives and the fact that ultimately these are these are people who are investing in making their lives better. Mm. And I've always taken that responsibility seriously. And so I was looking to friends and, you know, people that I'd have on that I'd had on Instagram who were choosing sobriety. Friends who had been really messy in the past, messy like me and then choosing sobriety. And then I was, and then they were absolutely killing it. They Mm. were just going on to be incredible, Mm. you know, incredibly successful and happy. They seemed happy. And I, it, 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 that was the common denominator, alcohol. I need to remove alcohol from my life. I need to get that distraction Mm. completely out of my life in order to make a success of this. It's, this is what it's doing, that decision. This is what that decision is doing for these people. Like, this is what I have to do. So I uh, chose sobriety because I had to make my, I had to do a good job at my work. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, besides from the, the fact that it would leave my mental health in, Towards the end, you know, it didn't take a lot for me to be really unwell the next day. You know, it, 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 I was so attuned to the effect that it was having on my mental health. Yeah. I could so clearly see how bad it was for me. And where, what we, what we put out, what we project, the energy that we offset, the, the energy that, that we offer, is a product of what we consume, the energy we consume, right? So what we eat and what we read and what we watch and what we drink. And I need, I I knew how alcohol was making me feel at work, even after just a couple of drinks the night before. Mm. And I needed to be energetically on the top of my game in work for the people that were coming to see me, like I, I couldn't, I couldn't be hung over. No, no, totally, <laughs> totally conflicting with your yeah. profession and what you're about. Right. Yeah. Um, there's like a whole authenticity piece there. Yeah. Um, and also you want to show up good and well for your clients. Mm. Yeah. And also jumping jacks on hangover. No, thanks. No, darling. No, no, I'm way. not doing it. God, I don't miss hangovers. No way. That's oh, one of the best you know things, what? Someone it? described it to me as in that feeling of having um, like itchy blood, where your blood feels toxic, where your blood feels toxic in your body, and that feeling of intoxication, anxiety. I don't miss it. No, I don't at all. So, 
You talked about um, when we chatted about this discussion and the language you use was the grass is greener, which I love, by the way. Um, and you talked about, you know, what you give up, you receive so much more in return. What do you receive in return? What does your life look like now? And how have you benefited from going sober? I think one of the biggest misconceptions that I had, which made it, which, which is why it took me so long to finally cut the cord Mm. on alcohol was this belief that if I do this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose my friends. I'm not gonna have a life. My life's over. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> it couldn't be further from the truth. And you know, relationships change. Mm. Full stop. Mm. Relationships change for for many a reason. It's life. It's life. Yeah. We leave jobs, we start new jobs. We move to different parts of the city, different parts of the country, different parts of the world. We start families. There's many reasons why relationships change. And my relationships did change. A lot of my relationships changed in choosing sobriety. It actually, marvel, you know, marvelously inspired change in some of my friends as well. You know, I've mm-hmm. got friends who are now sober yeah. as a result of witnessing in me yeah. what that change had had done for me. So yeah, my relationships changed and I've got more meaningful relationships with friends who are also now sober. But I've definitely come to... I've come to always try to be led by the light and seeking out what it is that's going to raise my vibration, ultimately what's going to make me feel the best I can, whether that's movement or meditation or, you know, any kind of presence practice or, you know, food and relationships. And I think choosing alcohol or choosing sobriety rather. (laughs) Definitely not choosing alcohol. (laughs) Choosing sobriety is in itself an act of being led by the light. But I think that not having alcohol in my life as a distraction has created so much more clarity for me to be able to be led by the light and to seek out those relationships, the things that make me feel good. So I've gained so much more than I've lost by choosing sobriety. I live a far more fulfilled life as a result of choosing sobriety I have, I'm a better friend. I have more meaningful relationships. I am able to 
I'm just able to show up. Mm. And I've gained far more than I've had to let go of as a result of choosing sobriety for sure. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I didn't want to keep saying yet, but I'm like nodding my head furiously. <laughs> and I think able to show up for yourself, yeah. right? That's the number one. You can't, this is going to sound so cheesy, but you can't give from an empty cup. Like you have to show up for yourself. And then the domino effect of that is everything else that you've just described. And Mm. I totally relate to presence practice as in, you know, meditation and other things that you can do to practice being present. I think not drinking is the biggest presence practice you can do. Because drinking is a way of getting out of your head. It's a way of altering your state of mind, right? Um, So we're not being present when we're drinking. And by cutting that out and being able to be comfortably present because you're comfortable with who you are and the situations that you're in. And it's not always easy, right? Sometimes you have to like lean into that fear, but... Um, yeah, I really relate to that. And I've never thought about it as a presence practice before, but, mm. um, I really like that idea. I love that, yeah. Yeah. So Chris, what next for you? What next for me? You know, your, your sharing with me of your story ultimately led to me choosing sobriety. We've had that conversation. I've said this Mm. before. And I'm really thankful to be able to be here. Mm. And when you invited me on to share my story, I said absolutely yes, because of what you and and your share did for me. Mm. And so I hope that in sharing mine that I can inspire change in the way that you did to me. Um, I guess more of that. Yeah. More of that. You know, I've had such a, I'm not, not embarrassed or ashamed to say, you know, I had a really good year last, last year, Mm. you know, business was, was really good. And my relationships thrived and I feel healthy and I'm I hope inspiring change with this story and Mm. so more of this Mm. more of this amazing and that's what it's all about right that's what it's all about paying it forward Mm. Um, so given you have been such an incredible fitness coach for me where can we find you you can find me on Instagram at Chris Millard Fitness. Nice. <laughs> Listen, thank you so oh, much thank you. for agreeing to come on. It has been <laughs> just so heartwarming and just such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you got something from it. What Next is recorded at Stave Studios, which is at Stave underscore studio on Insta. If you want to get in touch with me through Insta, it's at whatnext.podcast. Or you can email me at carl at whatnextpodcast.co.uk. 
For new episodes, subscribe on all the main podcast platforms. I'd love it if you can also leave us a review as this will help us to reach more people. Remember, if you're thinking of quitting or have recently quit, you're not alone. So keep listening for what's next.